All righty, we are in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're about to pick up with this starting, and we're going to read through verse 3 and wrap up verse 4, Lord willing. And, uh, and so then we'll jump into 5 through 7, and we'll see how far we get. All right, so um, reading um, from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, these are those two verses that I um, slogged through last Sunday. And uh, that are that are just that's, there's so much there. It's so many has so much heavy material to push through and discuss. It's just phenomenal. Um, it's the the level of understanding that that Peter had through the power of the Spirit as he wrote this is is beyond my comprehension. But let's pick up there just to catch up to where we are. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Love this fascinating concept here as we're picking up, that we might escape the corruption that comes into the world because of sinful desire. What a fascinating idea it is that we have escaped that corruption. Now, obviously, you go, wow, it kind of feels like it's all around me. It feels like it's affecting me every day. It feels like it's, it includes the decisions that I make every day. <clears throat> all that's true. But understanding that through the grace and work of Jesus Christ, what that means is, is that we have escaped the corruption. We, we are like, we're like stainless steel. That, that, yep, things can get on us, but it just washes right off. It's not doesn't become a part of who we are. It becomes we, we, the part of this new identity is that though we may even make choices that are corrupt, that corruption no longer has a place in us, on us. It's now the foreign object. It's a totally fascinating concept that as a believer who's put their faith in Christ and His work, that though we commit the same sins, though we fear the same fears, though we have the same uh, temperant, temperament problems, though we have the same whatever, and though, <coughs> though we commit the same sins over and over and over again, that corruption we're no longer stained by. That grace has set us free of that. And even in our failing and in our falling, that we have escaped, we may not have escaped the sin fully, but we have escaped its corruption completely. We are now instead partakers of the divine nature. Sin could no more cling to us than it could cling to God. That's not anymore who we are or what we are. In fact, let me take a few minutes and explain this word nature. I've got to unpack this phrase divine nature. If you walked away last Sunday and you were engaged and listening and, and you had studied the passage, well, you should have walked away from last Sunday's sermon going like, I was deeply disappointed by not diving more into the phrase divine nature. I was too, so we're going to do it today. So, unpacking this picture. So let me first explain what nature means here. So in the Greek, the word nature can mean the same, the same two meanings it does in English. One is a common usage term when we say nature, meaning the natural world, the part of the world that's outside and green. That's the nature, okay? And that's, that's when we talk about that, when we say nature this or nature that. Now, it is funny, we always need to keep in mind as believers, for example, that nature has no causational power. Nature does not cause things to happen. There is no mother nature who's out to get us or anything else. There's no such thing in reality. Nature doesn't cause hurricanes. 
Hurricanes are just nature. That's just, that's just the natural world in action, the following the laws of nature and the natural laws. That's, that's one thing. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, the Greeks are who began to use the term nature to mean the wholeness of something's essence. It's essence. It's essential traits. So let me unpack that for you a little bit, because if you're not a philosopher, you probably don't know what that term means. Um, In fact, if you read the NIV, one of the critiques of the NIV is that the NIV will use the word nature when it means something other than nature. It uses the word nature, and it really just means tendencies. (laughs) So, for example, the, the NIV will translate the word sarks, flesh, into sin nature. Well, it's a problem. If we're partakers of the divine nature, we cannot have a sin nature. That can't be the truth of who we are, the core of our identity. It can't be part of our essence. Our relationship to sin is, in fact, an accidental trait, which I'm about to explain. There are essential traits of anything, any given thing. There's essential traits, and then there are accidental traits. Essential traits are the traits that make it what it is. Let me give you an example. I'm going to draw a circle, okay? And that is? Circle. Circle, thank you. That's good. Now, how about this, though? Still a circle, because size is not an essential trait of circle. You can change its size, and it still is what it is. It's because size is not. How about if I do this? Now what is it? Circle. But it's in a different location than the first one, because location is also not an essential trait of circle. (coughs) You following me? Those are accidental traits. Yes, that circle is here, but that's an accidental trait. It's still a circle, even if it's over here. If I could color it and make it purple, it would then be a circle. It would just be a purple circle. You would have a descriptor, but it would still be a circle because color is also not an essential trait of circle. Are you all following me? Good. Excellent. See, this isn't that hard. Understand, half to two-thirds of Americans are already in disagreement with me. They just don't know it. Okay? I'm going to draw another circle. Ready? Here we go. Circle. Okay, good. Now I have drawn a circle with four corners. Are we good with that? No, why not? Yeah, it's, a, it's not a circle. That's why. It's not a circle. But understand, half to two-thirds of Americans would say, I'm the one who drew it. I'm the one who named it. It's my circle. It's my truth. I said it was a circle. You need to deal with that. Because they've rejected what's called essentialism in their thinking. Now, just to, become, just to comfort you for a second... No one has rejected essentialism in their daily life. No one's done that yet. I'm intrigued to see if someone tries it someday. What happens? It's going to be a train wreck to say, I don't even know how you would do it. Human beings, if you are rational and engaged with reality, are essentialists. We believe that things have certain essential traits. Now, of course we can debate what they are. We can debate what they are. (laughs) But we don't debate, in our own minds at least, the way we live, whether they exist. This is not a circle. If you have a meme that has Abraham Lincoln claiming that it's a circle, it's not one. Still a square. If we all got together and voted and decided that that was a circle, we would just all be wrong. That's, it's not, that's, not, how, that's not how essentialism works. Are you following me? So all of the traits that are essential traits, that's nature. That is the nature of something. Is when, if you were able to make a complete list of its essential traits, that would be its nature. 
Now, what's wild is we debate on what the nature of a circle would be, a simple two-dimensional object. Now, imagine if we started saying like, and you can imagine that philosophers spend their whole lives doing this, what is the nature of a chair? And what are examples of a chair? What makes something a chair? What is the chairness of a chair? Is a couch a chair? Or is a couch just a subset of chair? Or is chair a subset of couch? If you sit on it, does that make it a chair? So a stump that I cut off and then sit on, does it then become a chair in its nature when I sit on it? Or, or, or if it's a baby doll chair, I can't sit on those, does that make it a chair? And it's a, so you see how people get wrapped up in this for the rest of their lives. Now, imagine if you had to then to come up with the nature of humans. What are the essential traits of human or of man or of woman? That would be difficult. Understandably. Imagine if you were to come with the essential traits of God. What are his essential traits? What is his essence? In fact, in the Christian world, in the theology world, there's debate on whether he even has accidental traits. That's a discussion for another day. What this passage, what Peter is talking about here, is that we are partakers in the essential traits, the nature, the essence of God himself. That is unthinkable. And it would be blasphemous if we claimed it about ourselves. If we said, oh yeah, 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 I'm kind of like God. In fact, I, I think I share in his divine nature. If a preacher got up and said that, you should be worried about what they're going to say next, unless they're quoting from here, which is what it says. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. Something has changed, arguably even at the essential level for a believer. 2 Corinthians 5.17 makes that kind of that case. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone. It's done. Behold, the new has come. It's hard for, us to wrap our, hard for us to wrap our brain around that at the identity level because I still look the same. In fact, I often still, sadly, act the same. But, so, but something has changed at a level that is regenerate, starting over again, starting anew, with a whole new identity. Let me give you some examples for me. I went from being an orphan to being a son. I went from being someone not special to being a royal priest. Someone with very little theological implication to a temple and a sacrifice to the creator of the universe from a refugee to an ambassador, from a rebel without a cause to a warrior prince in a service of the king of kings, from lost to found, from enslaved to purchased into freedom, from dead to alive. Those are pretty deep identity changes, aren't they? That's what happens when someone puts their faith in Christ. So I want to give you a picture for this that may help you wrap your brain around this. Because what I don't want you doing is everybody running out and starting their own cult of yourself and going, hey, I'm a partaker of the divine nature, man. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty important here. I'm, I'm now kind of God myself, right? And we all turn into little Shirley MacLaine's standing on the beach, shouting at the heavens, I am God. <clears throat> How pathetic that must appear to God, right? Every book written that declares us to be God, which, for example, Gnosticism does, which we're going to talk about here in a second. No, no, this would be wrong. That's the idea that we are a cup and we reach into the divine nature and then we run off and start our own little cult, right? 
our little divine, our own little divinity running off into the wilderness to declare ourselves little gods. Don't do that. That's wrong. The partaker of the divine nature is like the cup that is fully emptied out in recognition of its emptiness and is welcomed in to the divine nature of God. This is what it means to be a partaker in the divinity of Christ. Is that we are now abiding in Him. In Him we partake in His divine nature. It doesn't change something because of our grunting it out or making it happen. In fact, what happens, here's what I love. We intentionally, I wanted to find a clear, a clear cup so that it would kind of disappear to you in the audience when I put it in there. That's on purpose because that's kind of what happens. It's like Christ is now the one living instead of me. Now, he's got to stumble because he's still got that, what's that game, the three-legged race? Poor Jesus is tied on to me in a three-legged race as he tries to help me live my life, right? <laughs> Imagine how frustrating that must be. As, as, as he's like, listen, if you would just, just would you just move? Come, like, and that's, that's got to be how he feels constantly. So he's saddled with me and trying to help me live the Christian life, and yet that's the idea. He has the power, the omnipotence. We just have potency, not omnipotency like he does. We are merely potent. All humans have it because we're created in his image. We have authority and dominion over creation and sometimes each other because we have a God who shares in his divine nature. And those of us who are now existing in his divine nature is, are experiencing something new. We're not just experiencing his excellence and his virtue, but even his glory. That's so inspiring to me. I want more of his glory. When you read the writers, the New Testament writers and others, they are truly stunned at the thought that they could be sharers in his glory. We feel deeply biological. We need sleep and we need eat. And we have all these different bodily functions and we just don't feel very glorified. And when we do, it's usually pride, not glory anyway. And so for us to get the opportunity to recognize that God is saying, no, no, I'm giving you the opportunity that because you are partakers of my divine nature, you are then recipients in many ways with me of the divine glory. We talked more about that last week. You can go back and look at it more. But I know what I, I know I want more of that. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now let's stop there for a second and think about what gain the Apostle Paul had. This guy was probably one vote from being the Sanhedrin. This would be like someone being, being asked to be a part of the Supreme Court of the United States, except then add that they're also a high priest. Somehow in the mix at the same time. And right on the verge of that, being at the very top of the ladder, as high as you can climb, and as a relatively young man, the Apostle Paul says, you know what I think about that? That achievement, the fact that I had achieved it, whatever it was, whatever your dreams are, Paul had bigger ones and had achieved almost all of them as a young man already. This would be like him saying, I counted that all as a huge waste. It was lost. It was a waste of my time. Eight, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He shall say it a third time. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as trash. Giving those things away, what they were, though they were the height of my culture, I now look back on them and realize, just trash. Trash in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, little cup running around, 
I have no righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How wild to consider that we are partakers of the very nature of God. The question we should automatically ask is, how do I experience more of that? How do I step more deeply into those waters? A few different times in Israel, we experience the waters, the living waters at different places. And I always encourage the people to step into them, to actually put their feet into them. And it's fascinating to watch some people, they fully catch this understanding and they're down on their knees or they're laying on their backs or they're trying to get more of this living water feeling experience. That's the physical expression of this spiritual truth. Verse 5, he knows this is what you're asking, so Peter's going to explain it to you. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. But unpack every phrase of that. For this very reason. These behaviors, mental and physical behaviors, are a response. Please hold fast to this. I want you to hear this at the beginning of the sermon, just in case you accidentally hear something else I say during the sermon. I don't want it to be built on anything other than this right here. These do not become to us as anything but as gifts. Hear me. We are recipients of gifts. All of this is a gift. I cannot emphasize this enough. Listen. These are not rewards for our merit. You do not earn these. You cannot earn these. They are not payment for our mighty efforts. They are gifts that come with a new identity. Or nothing. This, especially this, could easily become merely a behavioral modification sermon. As we talk about things like faith and virtue and knowledge and steadfastness. We don't want that to be the case. So many of you grew up with this. I did too until I met Kent Pate. I grew up with a behavioral modification gospel. That all I had to do was behave certain ways and someday Jesus would love me and I would stop hurting his feelings. That was the presentation that was given. That every single day I would lose that, salva- that right relationship with him. I was so tenuous because it was dependent on me, so of course it was tenuous. That I would lose it and lose it and lose it. These behaviors and choices and submissions, again, please hear me, are a result of a new identity we have been given as a gift. It is not one we have created. Death has lost its grip on me. Sin has been defeated. Even the ones we commit over and over again, they're defeated. We're the ones giving them any, any zombie-like dead life as we try to animate them back. Yet not us. Not us who faces them down. Not us who goes toe-to-toe with them and wins. Not us, but Christ in us. We just sing it over and over again. Yet not I, but Christ in me. That's where that happens. The Keswick's, which was a Christian movement in Great Britain a hundred years ago, the Keswick's remind us that it is not our job to face sin. It is our job to submit to the Holy Spirit And then let the Spirit face sin. We're terrible at facing sin. 
I don't know about you, my track record's not awesome at facing down sin, sinful attitudes, sinful thoughts, sinful perspectives, pride, arrogance, fear, any of those. Like, I don't, I'm not always good at facing those down. The Holy Spirit's track record is perfect. He's never fallen into one. And the Keswick said, we need to stop trying to go toe-to-toe with sin and instead submit ourselves to the Spirit and let the Spirit face that sin. Because his track record is perfect. It's not I, but Christ in me. I've got to tell you, multiple times during the songs today as we were singing, um, John choosing those songs today was clearly, he he goes and studies the Word, he prays and listens to the Spirit, and the Spirit again today led him to songs that were perfect for the sermon today and the passage today. I love it. I love experiencing God, people living out God's gifts, angelic voices with gifted musicians leading us in songs with lyrics that are perfect for us to hear the truth today. Um, and and he, he says this, that's the phrase, for this very reason. Are you not staggered by what gift God has given you? If we understood this, we would be, for this very reason, Peter says, we would be overjoyed to do the next phrase, which is to make every effort. Well, of course we would. If we understood how valuable it was. People often get, we get this word, this funny word in English that we get freaked out about, the word burden. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. You know what, child, I one time referenced children being a burden, and somebody's like, children aren't a burden. And I was like, I don't think you have children. <laughs> I don't think you actually have children. Of course children are a burden. Hey, let me let, me let you into something. Marriage is a burden. Spouses are a burden. If, but if I came up here and I had a, a whole bunch of gold bricks stacked up, and I said, you get to keep all the ones you carry, and you came up here and you would gather all you could, which would be like two, By the way, movies do that wrong. You'd gather like maybe two that you could carry, and you would carry that incredibly heavy burden out to your car. How would you feel about that? Burden doesn't mean bad. The reality is burden means there's something that we carry. Of course we carry one another's burdens. But you would carry those with great joy. Of course course all of that's the case. We would make every effort to carry as much gold as we could possibly carry out to the car. And that would be quite a burden. But it would be a good one. Just like children and marriage. This phrase here, giving all diligence. Literally, probably the, the Hebrew mind would have heard the phrase, apply the whole zeal. All the zeal that you have. Zeal is an important word to the Hebrew mind. Zeal is the measurement of, of something to be proud of. Zeal is something that, it, it's, it's like when they said about Jesus in the Old Testament prophecies, that the zeal for my house would consume him. That's, that's when he pitched over the big stone tables um, in the temple area. It's what drove the Hebrew leaders to to act the way they did, to go toe-to-toe with the entire Greek army or toe-to-toe with the entire Roman army. Or to take a spear and drive it all the way through two people committing sin in the temple area. That's zeal. It's a crazy kind of feeling that people would get. And this is saying the whole thing. But one commentary, I loved this, one commentary said, this is probably an idiom. Meaning it's a short way of saying something that's a big deal. We use idioms. They don't mean what they mean, but they just kind of do, Right? We say it's raining cats and dogs. That's an idiom. It would be tough to translate into another language that doesn't sound like, you know, pets are falling out of the sky, right? And so that's, that's the same idea. This is an idiom, and it probably the best translation is this is something that coaches would have said to athletes. What's our idiom for that? Just do it. This is the symbol that all they wore on their sandals, Right? is this one. Make every effort. Just do it. Leave 110% on the field. This is a, that's the idea. In order to do what? To supplement. Another intriguing word. To supplement. It's going to show up again 
And the word provided for in 111, which will be our Easter passage. I hope you're already strategizing who you're going to invite to Easter. Um, who you're going to invite to the Easter services. Especially if there's someone who Sunday morning goes, oh, it's too early, I can't make it. Like, great, we have a Saturday night service. Now you're out of, now you're out of excuses, aren't you? So 111, this is going to be our Easter passage, Lord willing. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Same word there, provided for, to supplement, to, to add to. There is no competition here. These are, these are not only not false binaries or false dichotomies, there is no binary to this. There is no dichotomy. There's not even a hint of one. Each one strengthens the other. They supplement the other. They don't supplant them. They don't take the place of it. They don't replace it. And here's what they are. Faith, about to look at these. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, phileo love, and agapeo love. These are like stacking blocks that are taller because they're all together. So let's look at them. We start with faith. And faith, to be persuaded, to believe. It's the word that we saw in the book of John over and over and over again. This idea that we are changed by what we believe. We see it to be true. We've accepted it. We're on board. We vote yes, etc. To believe it is the action verb in English typically. And with our faith should come virtue. Again, we unpacked that word last week. This idea of virtue is the word excellence. Um, the same word as above. And by the way, these are God's virtues that are on the table, clearly in this passage, not ours. Not the ones that we like, the ones He likes. Not the one our culture, not cultural virtues, not national virtues, not state-level virtues, not even denominational virtues, not church virtues, God's virtues, His excellencies. That's what we're looking at. Those are the ones that you need to be thinking about. The Apostle Paul unwraps them in Philippians 4. Eight, back to Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's the same word, any virtue to them, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then finally, knowledge. How fascinating that knowledge is not a bad thing. I don't know about you, but that church that I was raised in early on also made the error of teaching, and other teachers did I had throughout Christianity, that somehow knowledge is the opposite of faith. That the more knowledge you had, the more faith you didn't have. That there's a, a one-to-one ratio. Every block that I moved from knowledge, I was taking away from faith and vice versa. That what we were supposed to have was what they called blind faith. That is not a correct understanding of the biblical concept of blind faith. That would be ridiculous. It doesn't mean that it's something we don't know. It does mean there's something we're convinced of. You can be convinced of something that you know or convinced of something you don't know. Both are true. Those don't have anything to do with each other. Our knowledge should continue to grow. In fact, that should only strengthen our faith. The more our knowledge grows, which is exactly what Peter is saying, that with faith, our faith should not be without virtue, and our virtue should not be without knowledge. That would be silliness. That's not how that's supposed to work. Now, knowledge is not a bad thing. In fact, this word, this knowledge word, gnosis, turns up a lot in this passage. And many people think that, that the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle Peter here, as many of the authors in the New Testament are doing, are confronting the false teaching of Gnosticism. I'm not going to unpack Gnosticism here much. Um, just know that their, their entire belief system, which they tried to integrate into Christianity, but it's not going to. It has, it has a, a, I mean, 
aside from the fact that it has a different theology of God, a different theology of man, a different theology of salvation, and a different theology of virtues. Other than that, it's perfect for fitting in with Christianity, right? It's, it's unreal how wrong Gnosticism teaching was. And you just got to be aware, um, beloved, that when, when you see to this day, people throw a big fit about, well, how come those books weren't added to the Bible? There were all these other ancient books that were supposedly written by Mary or, or Peter or uh, you know, whoever, in, in, you know, Philip and whatever, that were allegedly written. Understand, when you say those are ancient books that should somehow be applied to the Bible, recognize they were written hundreds of years later and are directly in contradiction to biblical truth. So it would be similar to here we are, what, a couple hundred years after the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. It would be similar to me saying, writing an article and saying, redheads should somehow be treated as superior in the United States, as better than everybody else, signed Thomas Jefferson. And then I turned that in, right? And you would go, and then, and then acting upset that it's not added into the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. You would go like, well, I mean, you have, I don't know, no claim whatsoever on it being added in. None. It's several hundred years later. It goes directly against the entire principles of the Declaration, the Constitution, and you're the one who wrote it, and it serves you. Like, everything about this is bad. So when you see in the media, we've discovered, so, oh, they rediscover the book of Judas about every 10 years, and they're all scandalized by it. Um, it's been around for a long time. No one is scandalized by it unless you're ignorant media people and you have no idea what you're talking about or you have an agenda. And they push this and they're like, oh, this should, why was this left out? Those Christians are so closed-minded. For the same reason you don't let me add that into the Constitution. That's why we don't. Because it has no claim whatsoever. And I don't, I, to this day, I don't know how much it's just rank extraordinary levels of ignorance or, and I, which I think is more this, it's just dishonesty. It's being disingenuous. They know perfectly well it shouldn't be added. And that's what the Christians, early Christians had to begin fighting because Gnosticism was starting on its rise at this time. And people were starting to teach, and they were claiming that Jesus was uh, the founder of the Gnostic religion. And the apostles kept having to come out and go, no, 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 see, it's not just what you believe. It's not just what you know, sorry. It is what you believe, and it is how you act. Those are all together. Faith, virtue, knowledge. Those go together. And Gnosticism taught only knowledge mattered. Okay, so enough of that. So you, you add these things to this. You add to the knowledge self-control. Now, I have to comment very quickly on something that we ran into. We were at a, a conference, the staff, back when the staff was only like five people. We went to a conference. And at the conference, there was a speaker who I like, and he's a godly man. I'm not going to throw him under the bus, but he was a speaker. And he gets up there and makes this comment. He's teaching to preachers only. It's a whole room full of pastors and preachers. And he says, the main problem with y'all's churches is that you guys hire thinkers. And it's a bad idea. You do that because you're a thinker, and so you're, you just be the thinker, and what you need to do is hire doers. Hire doers, not thinkers. And it was kind of funny. One, my staff knows me well enough to know how much I hate false dichotomies like that, and they just really get under my skin. And that one's even just dumber than normal. And so as I'm sitting there, I'm getting more and more antsy. And finally, about 15 minutes in, I'm like, eh, I'm going to go sit out in the, waiting, <laughs> out in the foyer. And they were all laughing because they knew it was coming. I think they probably had bets on how long I could tolerate it. <laughs> And so I get up and, and leave the room and I go out there and I start working on something that's not so much a waste of my time. And, and even hearing it over the screen, I'm like, oh gosh, oh no. I keep wanting to run up on stage like, don't listen to him. Anyway, that been bad. The, um, uh, afterwards, I gathered him together and I said, I just want you guys to know something. I am very, very intentional about hiring thinking doers. Thinkers who don't do, yeah, I get you. There's plenty of church staffs that look like that. They're just lazy. 
But laziness is a vice, whether you're a thinker or a doer, just so you'll know. No, no. I, I, and I think doers who don't think cost the church a lot of money. They break stuff a lot. They do the wrong thing all the time. What I would love to do is hire thinking doers. How about that? How about for that for a crazy idea? I don't believe in this false dichotomy, and it's right here in Peter. Thinking doers, people who are, who are, it's not that your virtue is somehow in competition with your knowledge or your knowledge is somehow in competition with your faith. No, no, they all add together. And adding to these, this picture of, of where was I down to? To self-control, temperance, governor of yourself, power over yourself, dominion over yourself. What a funny concept. It's like an, the, the, the Greek phrase that's turned into this word here is really an oxymoron. The words put together, or the roots put together. As I understand, it essentially says, Self-control is when you are more powerful than you are. And it's an oxymoron, it makes no sense, and yet we all know exactly what it means, don't we? We've all been in competition with ourselves, and only one of us is going to win, and we hope it's us, right? It's like, man, I hope I win out over me in this one. This is a, we all know exactly what that means. It, it makes no sense, and yet we get it. And I do want to comment on, a lot of preachers here will reference um, the, whole con the whole story, which has been told in a thousand different ways of, you know, some Indian chief or something. There's two dogs in me, a good one and a bad one, and they fight. And the question is, well, which one wins? And the answer is the one you feed. Right. Now, there's a truth to that. Sure, that's good. It takes the Holy Spirit out of it. Understand that in us, we're partakers of the divine nature. The good dog will win. The good dog has dominance. The good, it's not an equal playing field between the good dog and the bad dog. Yeah, okay, maybe there's sometimes when the corruption seems to be something that we're choosing for ourselves, but it never becomes a part of our identity again. The bad dog in me is the flesh that will someday be burned fully out of me. We have dominion over ourselves, and knowledge should lead to change. If you know the truth, you should think and act according to the truth. One of the changes that we gain more control over ourselves as we learn more of the truth, of course we do. And self-control should be added steadfastness. This word here, patience, to remain, to stand still, something that can't be moved. Of course, self-discipline leads to strength, and strength allows us to persevere. This is an axiom. We see it even in our own bodies. When we are self-controlled in the way we treat our bodies, our bodies become stronger. Of course, that's the case with every aspect of who we are. I'm just flat going to have to skip the, uh, the video. I'm going to tell you what, it, what happens in the video. You can go look it up later. This is a video that shows the moment... Um, when Martin Luther faces, um, when Martin Luther faces the trial that he's under at that time, the Roman Catholic Church was deeply corrupt. Um, so that can happen to any denomination. Every denomination faces it at different times um, because it's, we're infected by us. Um, and so, but in looking at this, Martin Luther wants to reform this church that he loves to rescue the church from the errors that it has come to accept. So he steps up and tries to make these changes, challenging these changes. And eventually, after several years, he gets put in a position where he has to make a yes or no answer. And the yes or no answer, he says this, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Now, there's a line that there's some controversy over whether it goes in there, but it's the most famous part of it, that he says, here I stand, I can do no other. That is steadfast. No matter what pressure is brought against us, whatever pressures we face, the cultural pressures, the big tech pressures, the financial pressures, even the religious pressures, 
Will we still be standing after those pressures have given their best? After they've pushed with all of they, that they have, will we still be standing? Or will we be one of the majority, which will always be the vast majority, that falls? What is that? This word godliness, that we're to then live that out with steadfastness becomes godliness. Well, of course it does. Devoutness, reverence, what is right before God. To understand it played out, it literally probably means the obligations that are due to the supernatural and the divine. In other words, what God requires of us. Are we living according to what God requires of us? Many of us are aware of, a Micah, of Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I get asked all the time as a therapist and as a pastor and someone who teaches young people, what is God's will for my life? And they mean what is God's plan, which God rarely reveals. Um, but if they ask God's will, we look at, at 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. You know God's will? I'm about to reveal it to you. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, there you go. Now you know God's will. Master those, and maybe he'll reveal more, right? following the instructions and the directions and the requirements of God. And the next stacking is intriguing. And with godliness, brotherly affection, and with brotherly affection, love. These are two different Greek words for love, phileo and agape. And godliness, of course, isn't it fascinating that here in the Bible, godliness is not the end? That the top of the stack is an and godliness, and obviously we're done now. I'm like, no, no, with godliness, now you should stack on brotherly love. And with brotherly love, sacrificial love. Phileo is the I love who we are. I love the identity created by us. Our souls knit together like Jonathan and David. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm your greatest fan. I have amazing levels of affection for you. I enjoy your company and your presence. That's friendship. That's a great virtue. It's the one that makes marriage good. It's the one that makes companionship, that makes discipleship, that makes friendship. It is what friendship is. It's what makes it good, who we are. Eternity will be eternity growing in phileo love with one another for millions of years, knowing each other better and better and with God someday. And finally, not surprising that this is final, the top of the stack for God. If you studied the teachings of Jesus, it would make total sense that this is the top. And certainly Peter did. He said under his teaching, so Peter sets as the top block, the tallest point, agape love. In your King James, this is the word charity. I love you because I choose to. Um, when we were first married, almost 30 years ago, uh, Ginger would do what a lot of young brides will do, which is, you know, we're, we're there together, and she would say, why do you love me? Now, and I would say, I know what you're asking, and we'll get there. But first, I want you to hear this. I love you because I choose to. You don't get a vote. I'm not interested in her opinion. All these wonderful things, because I'm about to tell you all the wonderful things about you, which I know that's what you're asking, right? Tell me all the things you love about me. Great. I'll go on for a while. I'm kind of a poet. I could spend a long time there. 
But before that, you need to hear, I love you because I choose to. I believe it is what God has told me to do. I believe it is the right thing to do, and therefore I do that. Because you need to know that if all these other things change, I still will love you because that's not why I love you. I love you because I choose to. It is what God has called me to. Now, that may not be very romantic, but it is highly stabilizing. It's very important for the foundation of who we are to understand this. And this is what Peter puts at the top of partaking in the divine nature. Not surprising. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read not one of his poems, but one of the Apostle Paul's poems on this concept of agape love. So I want you to stand with me, if you will. We'll close our time with this. Now, I think any time we read this poem, we should be struck with the question, where am I in this? Where am I in living this out? And now you can even know if you go, I'm not, I'm not doing this stuff very well. Okay, well, you may need to trace back. And by the way, you aren't. <laughs> Welcome to the human race. They'd trace backwards, trace backwards into, well, what's, my, what's lacking? Is my virtue soft? Is my steadfastness weak? Is it my faith that is not very strong? What is it that's keeping me from stacking up and living in this agape love? So I'm done reading. We'll sing. And you can sing if that's what God leads you to do. You can pray if that's it. You can come up here and pray here with us. If you've never put your faith in this God who is the only perfect example of this love, um, then you can do that today. And we would love for you to do that today. Let today be the day of salvation. If you want to pray with somebody over in the corner, that's awesome. If you've been through the welcome home process with us and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, we would invite you to do that as well in a minute when we sing. For now, listen with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic power and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy nor boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly and then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The very words of God.